Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, Riverwood. And good morning to those who are watching online as well. We are glad that you have gathered with us in this moment, those in the room, those who are online. So my wife and I the other day were reminiscing about uh, a moment that happened many years ago, an infamous moment in our family. And so she one day was with the boys, uh, two of them, with a double stroller in Kohl's. Now, this was a long, long time ago. So she is going through Kohl's, looking at clothes with the stroller, going from aisle to aisle, a little bit crowded. Then all of a sudden she turns the corner, she's looking at something, then all of a sudden she hears out of the mouth of one of her sons as he is pointing this sentence, wow, that is a big butt. Now, whether it was or wasn't, in that moment, my wife is now mortified, needing to push the stroller anywhere but that aisle. Now, I tell that story to grab your attention because in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, arguably has the biggest but in the entirety of Scripture. And what I am speaking about is a short little word called a conjunction. A comparative conjunction, and we're going to get to it today. And a comparative conjunction in English, in the English language, is very important. Why is it so important? Well, it talks about something that was in the past, and then you get the but now, and it ushers in something brand new. Something in the past, something new. A, a corner is turned when you have this conjunction. And almost every famous speech ever written has a comparative conjunction. How do I know this? I read them this past week. Go to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Comparative conjunction. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. Comparative conjunction. Franklin Roosevelt, fear, it's there, the fear speech. John F. Kennedy talking about do for your country, it is there. These comparative conjunctions, they speak of a brand new reality. And we're going to look at one today in God's word. Probably the most important conjunction that we will ever come across in the scriptures. That's why I'm glad you're here. We're going to examine that today. And in God's word, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, here is what some of the people throughout the centuries have said about the paragraph that we are about to look at. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, that these verses are the chief point, the very central place of not just the letter of Romans, but the entire Bible. Leon Morris, he's a New Testament scholar, he's quoted as saying this, this is the most important single paragraph ever written. And our friend Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, writer, pastor, would say this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these. 
what are these words? What, what, what do we need to hear? Well, if you have your Bible, to open it up to chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21. And as you're turning there, I have a, a quick summary um, for all those who have maybe missed a Sunday, you haven't been here, you, haven't, you need to kind of catch up to this conversation. And so what I have done is I have summarized uh, the first three or two chapters uh, for all those who are mathematicians. Who, like math, who likes math in the room? Anyone like math? All right, so this is Romans as a math equation. Four truths that we need to know from the first few chapters. One, we are exchangers of truth. We talked about that a number of weeks ago in chapter one. Add to that, I mean, this is the narrative of our story. Those who are watching, those who are in the room, my story. We then add to that that we are suppressors of glory. We then add to that that we distort sexually. We then add to that that we practice religious moralism. All of these things are our story of humanity. And then all of that equals what Jeff talked about last week. None is righteous. No, not one. That is the summary of the first few chapters of, of, of Romans. And the summary statement there really is broken down into one verse. If you only had to use one verse, Romans 1. <clears throat> 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That's our story. We are unrighteous people. That's, that's what defines us. All right, so now let's read the words that now turn this corner. Romans chapter 3 verse uh, 21, and I'm going to read the entire paragraph, and then we're going to go back and make some observations. This is what the Apostle Paul says. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so at the beginning of verse 21, we have our comparative conjunction. There it is, but now, which signals to the reader that we're headed out of one section. Lots of weeks talking about the narrative of humanity, of unrighteousness. But now, but now, we turn the corner and there is something that Paul wants to tell us. And Paul uses this comparative conjunction in lots of places in his letters. Uh, I just show you this. I'm not going to read all these verses. But just to give you kind of a flavor, um, in Galatians he uses it. In, in Ephesians, in Colossians, this, this, this old life but now, something different. Going from darkness to light, from death 
to life. But now, but now, Paul uses these comparative conjunctions regularly to usher in kind of the new reality of what is found in Christ. And so what is at the core of the good news for Paul in our Romans passage? What is this new reality, this but now? Where is the corner turning? Well, it is turning really on one very key word that pops out in these verses. It's at the center of this great news. I'm going to point it out to you. Um, It's right here. And so if you're looking at your Bible, your English translation, you're thinking, wait a second, I see the word righteousness, and then I see the word justified, and just, and justifier. And I want to let you know that in the original language, all seven of those words come from the same word. That's what Paul is really highlighting. He's hitting this word over and over again. In English, we use two different words, righteousness and justification, justifier. And so that is what's happening in these five verses. And what is this word that he's kind of hammering home? It's a legal word. It's it's in the realm of of a court. And you would hear this kind of in, from a judge kind of setting. It's interesting because this past week, even in our own culture, there's been a lot of talk about courts and judges and and even as uh, Amy Comey Barrett has been in front of the Senate answering questions, all of the different sound bites. The most interesting one to me was this, when someone asked her, why do judges wear black robes? Do you remember the question? And she said, they wear black robes for two reasons. One, to show the unity of the judges. But then also, she said this, to speak as an authority, speaking in the name of the law not as an individual. And that's exactly what's going on here in these five verses. This is a word that is being declared about those who are Christ followers. It's as if you are standing in front of the judge, and now you're hearing this, you are free. These are wonderful words. This is a wonderful legal pronouncement from an authority. As if you are standing before a judge, there is freedom. There is a removal of guilt. There is a, a corner that is being turned, a new reality that is being declared. And that is why this word is really, really important. There is now no more condemnation, but there is now innocence. And so the word justified or righteous would be the word that anyone standing in front of a judge would want to hear. And so what Paul is saying in this paragraph, he's saying this, righteousness is possible. Righteousness is possible. Now think about this. We have spent five weeks talking about the unrighteousness of man. And if we can ever get away from this, And now Paul says, it's possible. Righteousness is possible. And so if you've been here the last number of weeks, or maybe you're thinking to yourself, you you read this paragraph and you think, what I really need in my life is uh, more love and more grace, a better job, better health, a better marriage. I mean, that's what I, I really need No, that's not what you really need. Those are symptomatic of other things. What you really need 
is what Paul's talking about right here. Of all of the things in life, you need a righteousness. You need this. I need this. Those who are watching, you need a righteousness. That is your greatest problem. And so let's going to go back and look at this a little bit in greater detail. There's four parts to this great news, this righteousness. And when you hear these statements that are going to come out of this passage, your level of excitement should rise. I'm saying your level of excitement should probably exceed that of a Browns win over Steelers kind of excitement. And so if there is going to be cheering going on, I welcome that today because this is good news. If we cannot get excited about this, we shouldn't be excited about anything. There is something very special about what Paul is going to tell us in these verses. And so let's look at it. Let's go back to the first verse, verse 21. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so here's the first great news statement. Hopefully this is exciting to you. But here's the first statement, that God's righteousness does not originate with humanity. Who's excited about that? Exactly. We, we should be excited. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. But now the righteousness, and he says righteousness of God, has been manifested. And it stands in, in stark contrast to the last four weeks where you have heard, and I hope you've heard this, that if it's about humanity, there is all, the story is unrighteousness. Inside of you, inside of me, is something that is not good. It's not great. The advice from the 80s uh, classic Roxette song, Listen to Your Heart, There's Nothing Else You Can Do, is like the worst advice ever. You need to hear that this is the truth, that there is unrighteousness in you and in me. And I know this to be true because I can attest it to myself. My own desires, my own will, the things that I want are flawed. And that's the true statement for every single one of us. And so this is great news because we need a righteousness that's going to come outside of you and you and you and what we could dream up and me, anybody on the planet. We need something outside of us. This is wonderful news because if we try to get it from us, it will always be corrupt. And this is really the great news of Christmas. I, mean, I know there's 68 days until Christmas, but this is the wonderful news of Christmas, that there was not a normal conception. Something outside of the norm of humanity happened. Theologically, huge news. Something outside of humanity showed up in a great and new way. Now, additionally, in this verse, Paul says that the law and the prophets, they tell this story too. And it isn't, what is this righteousness? If you read the whole Old Testament, it better answers the question, who is this righteousness? 
It, it kind of whets your appetite, not for a what answer, but for a who answer. Let me give you a, a couple of, of quick examples. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis into the third chapter, and you start hearing about the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Hmm. Who is that going to be? Then you get to the kings, and you're reading about David's kingdom and his kingdom that will endure forever. Forever? How, how is that even possible? And then the prophet Isaiah, who proclaimed that a child will be born who will bear the name Mighty God. Who is this? This is wonderful. Who is going to fulfill this? And so God's righteousness does not originate with you or me. It is his story that started all the way back before time. His story was in place, his narrative. And so the first question that I ask everyone this morning is, do you know this to be true? Are you seeking a righteousness that isn't found in being a better person? Because you need that. You need to look outside of yourself and look to the one who can provide this kind of righteousness. All right, that's the first good news. Let's go on to the next verse, verse 22. The righteousness of God, it says, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right, so we're going to get to the second kind of good news statement. The great news statement is this, that God's righteousness is not accomplished through good works. Who's excited about that? Exactly. This is great news. That is not something that we earn. It's recorded that Martin Luther, the reformer I spoke about earlier, that when he was translating this verse into German, he added the word alone to emphasize the importance that it is by faith alone in which people experience the righteousness of God. It's not faith and, faith and, no, 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 no. Martin Luther was so clear. He said it is by faith alone, sola fide. And so the declaration of freedom from sin, which is justification, is not earned by human means. And in the world that we live, this is very unique thinking. Think about this. In every setting where we see success, we always see someone doing something of hard work, whether it's someone who climbs a corporate ladder, someone who is a professional sports athlete. I mean, you live and die by the phrase, what you sow, what you reap is what you sow, so what you reap. And so the idea of more hard work is what you're going to get out of it. And so we live and die by that, and that is true almost universally. I remember going to, as a young boy, to uh, Firestone Country Club with my father, who had access to go through uh, work-related kind of connections to the golf tournament. And so we'd be there long after the tournament was over. People would be playing golf. All the professionals would be done. We would have dinner, and I would kind of sit there, and I would watch the practice range, and I would watch the putting green. And these were places, long after the tournament is over, where you'd see lots of professionals still practicing still practicing, still doing a lot of hard work. It always stood out to me, because I'm the kind of person, after I play golf, I'm in the car and I'm gone. <laughs> but not them. 
It's different because they were practicing this idea of hard work will get you somewhere. Now, is it any surprise then we take that same kind of mentality, that same framework, and we then try to apply it to our spiritual lives? That I am going to earn something. I am going to achieve something. And what God's word says, no, no, that's wrong kind of, of thinking. God's righteousness, what you need, is not accomplished through what you can manufacture and the good works that you can come up with. And so we cannot become earners of God's righteousness. Paul says it in Ephesians beautifully. It's a very familiar verse. In Ephesians, he talks about how, for by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Did you catch that? So no one can brag. No one can say, look at me. Look how wonderful I am. I did this for the poor. I gave this to the church. Look at me. I went on a missions trip. And all these things that we look and we try to receive glory for. And Paul says, no, that's wrong kind of thinking in God's economy. In God's kingdom, it doesn't work that way. It is by faith alone. What he provides. And that is great news. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? It might be the single most important question that human beings have to wrestle with. I was thinking about the most important question you could ever interact with another human being over, and it is this question. What do you really believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe? It gets to the whole topic of this idea of what he did and not what we do or have done. All right, the righteousness of God, good news, does not originate with you. Secondly, it's great news that it's not accomplished by good works. The third part is in verse 24. Paul continues, and he says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so the third piece of great news that is really exciting is this, that God's righteousness is not what we deserve. Who's excited about that? It's not what we deserve. Wayne Grudem, he's a professor. I had him in seminary. He wrote a thick book, a wonderful book called Systematic Theology. He defines grace like this. God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Now think about that. God's goodness, this is grace, God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And that's exactly what Paul's communicating in verse 24, that the justification, the righteousness, the declaration that we need is the opposite of what we deserve. Now what do we deserve? For those who have been here the last number of weeks, the answer to that question is the wrath of God. Why? Because we are unrighteous through and through. We are unrighteous, and because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. We are suppressors, exchangers, distorters, moralists. This is what we deserve. And if I skip ahead in Romans, we're going to get to it in a few weeks, but in Romans chapter 6, 
This is exactly what Paul says. He reminds us that, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get lead to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then this verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that little word there? The wages what we truly deserve, what we have earned through our lives and actions is unrighteousness. This is what we deserve. Death and separation and punishment. Yet, here's the good news. There is great news that out of God's love and mercy, and most notably his grace, he offers us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know his grace? His amazing grace that saved a, a wretch like you and me. We once were lost, but now have been found. That's the story of grace. Do you know this story? So God's righteousness doesn't originate with humanity. Yes, that's great. It's not accomplished through good works. Wonderful. And it's not what we deserve. And the fourth point is found in verses 25 and 26. It keeps getting better and better. Notice what Paul says here. He says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the fourth great news that we need to hear is this, that God's righteousness satisfies the wrath of God. God's righteousness is satisfied in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is satisfied that way. And the word that really we draw our attention to in these two verses is a word that we don't really probably even know much about or rarely would ever use, that this word called propitiation. It's a word that means to draw away anger, to uh, appease wrath, um, to kind of take not only the blame, but also the punishment. As if you're, you know, mom and dad walk into the room and said, who broke the dish? All right, who's going to take the blame and the punishment for that? Someone needs to own up to it. And in the same way, God comes into the room and says, who is the blame for all of this unrighteousness, and who is going to take the punishment? And in that moment, Jesus Christ stands up and says, I will. That is propitiation. I will take the blame. I will take also the punishment that these people would deserve. This word also has lots of imagery for those who have been familiar with the Old Testament. Remember in the original setting of Romans, there were people who are from the Jewish origins as well as Christians now. 
but they would have known this kind of word because this word goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you remember, there was the temple and there was the outer courts, but as you worked your way into the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies that was very sacred. And in the Holy of Holies, there was a place called the Mercy Seat. And nobody went back there but a priest once a year to sprinkle blood so that there could be atonement for the sins of the people. This word has that kind of imagery that they would have locked into. And so God's righteousness satisfies the wrath of God. And Paul says, but now. The great news is, but now there is one who came who was the perfect lamb of God the shed blood of the one who would take upon himself the wrath of God, who would take away the sins of all who believe in him. Have you made that decision? It's a wonderful gift. The wonderful gift of Jesus Christ. Do do you know this? It's the great news of God's righteousness And so as you listen to these four aspects this morning, my prayer is that you would, those who are sitting here, those who are watching, that you would embrace this, that you would believe this, that this would be something that you would trust at the deepest deepest level of heart and soul. And it's not something to, to put off for another day. It is something that you need to do even today. And it's not something like, oh, well, my parents believe this, or um, Pastor Cole believes that. No, this is very like, what do you believe about these things? Whether you're in sixth grade or well beyond, this is something that you need to hear. This is good news. That in the midst of your unrighteousness, righteousness can be found. You can be righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. For all those who have heard this news, who have embraced, who believe this, let me ask you one question. Are you walking in the joy of the Lord? Are you walking in the joy of the Lord? Has the righteousness of Jesus Christ enveloped your life? Does it define your life? See, someone was asking me this question. So what? What does this mean for me as someone who is a a Christian? This paragraph, like, what should it mean for me? And so I have two answers to that question. Because it should look like something in your life. It should radically change all of us the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. See, if you have the joy of Christ's righteousness, then you will be someone who is pursuing Jesus with your life. See, these words on the wall aren't just here, just happenstance. We believe these words. That if you are a Christ follower, his righteousness has has is now your answer, you will pursue him with your life. You will be someone who cares deeply about growing together with other believers. You're not going to be on your own. 
maybe dabbling here and there with other people who are Christians. No, you will have a desire to be like, I need to be in fellowship. I need to be around others. I need to be sharpened by them. And not only is the joy of the Lord about the words on this side of the room, but it's also about the words on this side of the room. When we have a joy of the Lord, we want to serve others because we know that when we serve others, it affords us the opportunity to then tell them the great news. It's only going to come when we have our lives out there with others serving them. Why are you serving me? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing X, Y, and Z? I'm doing this because of the joy of the Lord that resides inside of my life that you need to know. And the next part about making disciples is telling people that story. That this isn't just good news for us that we keep kind of private. This is good news the world needs to hear. And so who are we telling this good news to? Someone in our own family, somebody who we work with, someone who lives next door. You see, the joy of the Lord is not able to be contained. I gotta tell it. This is the most wonderful news. But now. But now. That's what it looks like. Do you have the joy of the Lord in your life? Second, I'll end with this story. What does it look like? So this past week I was called um, by uh, someone who comes here. Nobody knows this couple. They come here third hour um, they come only in really the summertime because in the winter they spend all their time in Texas. And his name is Ollie. His wife is Jeanette. And this past week, Jeanette called me. She said, haven't seen Ollie and I at church for a number of weeks. Ollie fell, but then it led to other things. Ollie's in his 80s, and she said, um, things aren't good. Went to the doctor. He has advanced uh, cancer, liver, kidney, super aggressive. He has moments to live. Will you come over? He wants to see you. So, of course, I go over, walk into their home, and there's my friend Ollie. He's at the point now where he, he couldn't talk. He could see me. He could respond with his eyes. He couldn't speak. Breathing tube. And so I'm standing over Ollie. He puts out his hand. I take his hand, and now I'm holding his hand. And now I'm talking to Ollie. And I said, Ollie, so good to see you. And I said, you know, at church, you haven't been the last number of weeks. We've been talking through the book of Romans. And I said, there is so much bad news about the unrighteousness of man. But I said, then there's the great news of what Jesus Christ has done. And as soon as I said that, Ollie gripped my hand, he pulls me close, and now I'm looking at his light blue eyes. And what do I see? The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. This man had moments to live. And what was he relying on? It wasn't his long accomplishments. It may, he has lots of them. He's a very interesting man, the life he lived. But none of that meant anything in that moment. What mattered in that moment was Jesus Christ. That 
is what the joy of the Lord looks like. Do you know the joy of the Lord? Do you know his righteousness? My prayer all week is that this good news would reverberate not only in this room, not only online, but in our community. We need to be the ones who tell the world the great news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for um, good news. In the midst of a world where we keep hearing bad news and we live out bad news and our lives are dominated by unrighteousness, (laughs) we are so desperate, we are so thirsty for something of good news. And here it is. Here it is. But now, a righteousness has been revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we would know this. We would believe. We would understand the grace that's extended, the gift that is given for everyone who is here, for all who are watching, or maybe some who will watch later on. I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work by your Spirit that communicates these truths to the deep level of heart and soul. That we would submit ourselves to you and this truth and this good news, and that it would change us, that we would be people who are filled with the joy of the Lord. And may we go from this moment, even in that kind of excitement. You are good, you are great, and you are good to us. Thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.